Well, the division series are underway, but for the St. Louis Cardinals, it is an off day and an off season. Uh, so we're here to do a, a, an end of season Cardinals off day podcast. Uh, ben, you know, we do these every off day during the regular season. Um, during the off season, um, it, we kind of do these at our whim, don't we? <laughs> It, it is a little bit more at our whim because every day is an off day and we certainly uh, would probably get pretty boring pretty quickly uh, if we had an episode every day talking about Cardinals baseball in the off season because it was an off day. Uh, except for yeah. like during the winter meetings, that would probably be like the only time that was kind of interesting to have a daily uh, episode. Absolutely. And I think a lot of the reason we're here is uh, Cardinals Gifts, who tweeted at us and told us that he was he was waiting. Um, I tweeted back the gif of Al Pacino from Donnie Brasco saying, uh, uh, I was sent for. I've been sent for because that's kind of <laughs> how I felt, Ben. I feel like Cardinals Gifts sent for us. And so uh, just as if, you know, Sonny Red or Sonny Black had sent for us, we uh, we, we have to show up. Yes, we do. Uh, and I'm pleased to be doing it you know, after a few days to sort of uh, take in uh, some of the commentary and uh, think about, you know, kind of what the postseason now is uh, and what that meant this year. And, you know, I got to tell you, I feel a lot uh, like I did in 2012 when the Cardinals were in the first wild card against the Braves, yeah. the the infamous infield fly rule game. Yeah. And uh, we're on the the other side of things this year. But the that was the first experience with the wild card game. And uh, I believe it was Dan Moore, uh, Dan up at Viva Albertos, who said something along the lines that it's brutish and short. <laughs> and yeah. it it still is because it didn't even really feel like you had your feet underneath you, like you were in the postseason yet, and it was already over. Uh, what did you think of the you know the three game series? I had the same reaction as you, and I really wondered going in because you know we've experienced the one game wild card, we've experienced the the five game division series. And I honestly didn't know where this would land. And for me, this felt exactly like a one-game wild card game. I really, you know, um, and and uh, you know, once you're down, uh, you, there's just not a lot of you know possibility to come back. And I, I think about it compared to certainly a seven-game series, right? If you lose the first two games of a seven-game series, you're just like, well. Okay, not off to the best start, right? But like you're you're far from out of it now. In a, in a five game division series, you know, lose the first two games, that's a little tougher. But you you still kind of feel like, you know, okay, we you know got a chance. Of course, here you lose the first two games, and uh, you know, uh, the season is over. So yeah, uh, brutish and short, I think, is a pretty good um, pretty good summary of it. And, and Ben, I'm glad we waited a few days to record because I think it's going to allow us to seem. Uh, measured and reasonable, um, as opposed to if we had recorded it right afterwards when we would have been uh, angry and sad. Well, I, I also think it helps that we aren't trying to use the football analysis talk radio template on baseball. Yeah. You know, like talking about like Jeff Albert, like he's an offensive coordinator who had a terrible game plan. And then, right. you know, talking about how batters batted in two games, like it's you know, indicative of anything, you know, yeah. and, and well, so uh, I, I think we'll do better in that regard as well. Yeah. The question I had here though, was to ask you whose fault it was Ollie Marmel's Jeff Alberts or Paul Goldschmidt, because I feel like you have to, you have to answer one of those, but it sounds like you're saying it was, it was no individual's fault. Uh, no, because you can win uh, a game in baseball in lots of ways. If, uh, you would have told me that the Phillies uh, would have scored six runs in the top of the ninth, you know, without really hitting the ball very hard, uh, you know, that often, which is not the way that the Phillies typically score, right? Like they're yeah. aggressive. They, they tend to attack fastballs early in the count and they tend to hit for power. And then, mm -hmm. you know, they had the walks and the hit by pitch. And it, it was, it was not even the way that you would expect the Phillies to erupt for six innings, 
uh, or excuse me, six runs in an inning. So like, it's, you know, like um, I think that was everyone's worst nightmare. And I think uh, the way that they mapped out the pitching is to me, the thing that the coaching staff probably deserves the most criticism for because they, based on what they knew, they felt that they could get more than one inning from Ryan Helsley, but they didn't know how Ryan Helsley would feel throwing that many pitches after suffering the jammed finger. He, he was an unproven commodity at that point in time. And so, you know, we're looking back with hindsight uh, and it was 2020. He looked good at the start of his outing, although he was, he, he was kind of messing around with his hand. Um, And he told them he felt good when he came into the dugout, but, you know, it was just kind of one of those things where, okay, he's, he's up, he's down, then he's back up. How's that going to work? And, you know, I think we've all probably jammed a finger, you know, either playing out at recess or, you know, whether it's basketball, football, I think I've jammed it in every sport, but baseball (laughs) that I've played. And it, it can be, it can make life difficult uh, using your hands. And so, uh, I, I thought maybe they were a little over-optimistic on what they were going to get out of Helsley. And, you know, to me, looking back with 2020 hindsight, I think that is probably the choice to map out the pitcher usage in that way that probably deserves the most scrutiny. I mean, how, how do you feel yeah. about the way he managed that that first game? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think if you were to be critical of Ali for anything, um, the Helsley thing... Um, I think it made sense to bring him in when he did, because frankly, he was kind of aggressive with his matchups throughout throughout the game. And, you know, he got to the guys he wanted to get to. Um, you know, if, if I were to Monday morning quarterback it, I would say to me, sending him back out there for the ninth without another guy, uh, you know, g- getting warm and ready to come in, uh, you know, at kind of the first sign of trouble. I, I felt like that was, you know, maybe not a not a great choice. And and as a result, you know, I think by like, you know, the you know, the first or the second walk, right, it was pretty clear Helsley needed to be out of there. And yet he still faced another batter and hit that batter and walked in a run. So um but the thing is, in the grand and, and so I, I know some people just roasted Marmol online for that, as people always do when you blow a game in the ninth inning. But it's like, folks, step back and think about what we're talking about there. I, like that criticism I just gave is basically he should have had a reliever ready like one or two batters sooner. That's a tiny, tiny criticism. And who was he going with in that situation? He was going with the guy who's been his best pitcher all year. So basically he was relying on the guy who was his best pitcher all year, maybe didn't have um, as much backup as he could have had. But I mean, the grand scheme of things, I think that's just like a tiny, tiny criticism. And, you know, it's just kind of the, you know, the way things go. So, and it probably helped Marmol that they got just, you know, you know, pretty much rolled and didn't do anything in the second game. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. I don't think there's anything to really criticize Marmol for in the, you know, the game where they, uh, you know, they didn't score a run and barely had a runner reach second base. Um, and also I was pleased and felt pretty smart because we were talking about, you know, how long do you think he'll stay with the starter? And he basically went with Quintana, you know, into the, Quintana into the sixth just to face Schwarber and then got him out of the game. Yeah. And, you know, I, I was uh, listening to the radio broadcast with Danny Mack and he was like, I know what the analytics say, but you know, I would leave him in there because of the eye test. And I was like, no, that's what Mike Matheny would do, you know? And then, and then I saw a thing after the fact that he was like, all the analytics said, you know, get him out of the game. And I was like, no, you know, Schwarber's splits against yeah. lefty pitchers and Quintana's splits against lefty batters are analytics because they're information. They're they're stats right. that reflect performance. And they suggested it was a it was a good idea to have the lefty face the lefty power hitting leadoff guy before you aggressively get him out of the game and go to the bullpen. And so I was yeah, glad to see him do that. I thought he did a really good job managing the starter. Oh, I th- I thought so too. And then, you know, he goes to Hicks to face Hoskins. Uh, and, uh, uh, right. It was Hoskins, the number two hitter. Anyway, there were two righties after Schwarber. Um, I'm, uh, you know, and 
and Hicks got them both out. And that's really the perfect kind of situation there. Now it could have gotten a little, you know, dicey if, if, you know, then you had Hicks facing Harper, but you know, it didn't come to that. So yeah, I agree. I think he, I mean, he had a game plan going in. He had a very clear game plan and he executed it really well. His best pitcher, uh, an injury that they thought was behind him kind of resurfaced, you know, and, and maybe it took Marmol a smidge longer than we would have hoped to respond to that tiny, tiny criticisms. Uh, ben, what do you think about the folks that believe that um, uh, Jeff Albert teaches uh, batters to hit, but only during the regular season and specifically trains them not to hit in the postseason? I think that take is about as ridiculous as the one that Paul Goldschmidt is a fraud or Nolan Arenado <laughs> can't hack it in the postseason. And so I, I just wanted to I wanted to do, I guess it's kind of a pop quiz, but it's only one question, uh, Ben. Okay. Who, who would you want, uh, up to bat in a pivotal moment in a postseason game player a who is a career 397, 465, 794 slash, uh, so batting average on base percentage and slugging uh, in the in the postseason. That's a 1.259 mm-hmm. OPS. Or player mm-hmm. B, who's a 179 batting average, 258 on base percentage, 268 slug, and 526 OPS. Who would you rather have up? Well, I'll be honest. I wouldn't really look at anyone's postseason splits because I just don't believe you ever really get to a sample size that's meaningful. So... But uh, I think you're trying to. Well, I think. The... Well, no, you have correctly answered the question, Ben. Although yeah. not, uh, not, not without knowing the identity, everyone, because I always do this to him. I spring these questions on him. <laughs> Player A is David Freeze in the 2011 postseason. Player yeah. B is David Freeze in the 2013 postseason. Yeah. Well, I and I don't think anyone would have guessed that. Yeah. <laughs> right. well, well, no. well, sure. But <laughs> yeah. if there, if, if clutch is a thing and if it, yeah. you know, if the postseason is reflective of any sort of inner skill and I think it is on the periphery, I, I don't want to overstate it, yeah. but if, but if clutch is a skill and the ability to hit in the postseason is something that a player possesses like in his heart or soul right. or whatever. Right. You would think David Freeze would do pretty well in the 2013 postseason, but you would yeah. be very, very wrong. And well, it just goes to show the postseason is like any other stretch of games. You can get hot or cold, and yeah. you know your numbers reflect that. Yeah, I mean, if you if you've read anybody that's done real studies of it, like you know, clutch just doesn't exist in, in baseball. It's it's just just about impossible to you know identify that it exists, and we think it exists because we notice it when it you know, it happens to sequence that way. But yeah, if you, exactly, if you ask somebody after 2011, is David Fries a clutch playoff hitter? Everyone would have said yes. But as you pointed out, you know, then those things change. Uh, You know, Ben, I did a little bit of looking on Paul Goldschmidt because I wanted to try to give these, you know, Goldschmidt as a fraud type people, even though they're buffoons, I wanted to try to give them a little bit of the benefit of the doubt and say, now in fairness, Goldschmidt ended the season on a pretty bad streak, right? Yes. I looked at, you know, the, 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 I looked for the worst like 30 day or 30 game spans in Goldschmidt's career, which is pretty much exactly the span he had at the end of the season where he, you know, just didn't perform really well. Um, and, uh, cause I wanted to know, is this the worst 30 day span in Paul Goldschmidt's uh, career? And the answer is no, not even close. He had worse 30-day spans in 2012, 2018, 2019, and 2021, sometimes multiple times in those seasons. So actually, if you sort by all of Paul Goldschmidt's like worst 30-day spans, this was like the 52nd worst 30-day span that he's ever had in the majors, which you know just goes to show like, yeah, he he had not a great you know, span there, but it wasn't even really out of character for his career. And, you know, when he has a span like that in a, you know, a June or an April or something, it just kind of, 
you know, it, it disappears in the wash basically at the end of the season. But here, of course, because it was at the very end of the season and then it continued into the playoffs, I, you know, people kind of elevate it in their mind. But to me, all it was was a, a rough span at the end of the season. It changes my opinion of who Paul Goldschmidt is as a player and what I expect of him next season, 0%. It, cha- it doesn't change anything. Yeah, and, and when we say the postseason, we're also talking about two games. It's a it's a yeah. meaningless sample size. And, yeah. you know, he has had a, a great set of results at the plate this year. Um, but if you look at his quality of contact, it is it is actually by expected weighted on base average on contact. So based on the profile of a batted ball, it's exit velocity, launch angle. Um, his quality of contact this year is actually his worst as a Cardinal. And his expected weighted on base average uh, was about 365 compared to his weighted his actual weighted on base average, which was about 420. And so, uh, in the last month of the season, he had uh, you know like a low 300s weighted on base average that was still good for a weighted runs created plus of 108, which is above average, by the way. Right. And and so, but the gap between what his results have been all year. And that dip is like a cavern. But if you look at his quality of contact, it's about, you know, half that, right? And mm-hmm. also his his walks went down and his strike ups, strikeouts went up. So, you know, you have the strikeouts adding to the frustration because there's nothing more frustrating than watching your best hitter strike out in big situations. And so yeah. all of those things colored our perception coming into this. And of course, I think I think in game two he had perhaps his his worst at bat <laughs> yeah. of the season when he when he struck out and uh, and really just uh, twisted the knife that was in yeah. our side uh, in the form of of this brutal uh, postseason series. So, uh, you know, I I think you're probably going to expect him for about a mid three fifties weighted on base average next year. I'd be surprised if he gets many MVP votes, but that does not detract from what a good year he had, even if he ended on a down note. And so I think people are just going completely insane over this. Um, and, and I don't understand why. Well, and Ben, you said, and I, I will, we'll move on here soon to a couple kind of looking ahead things, but you mentioned small sample size. And I wanted to mention that as well, because I have seen in so many places, you know, tweets and articles and things, people talk about how, you know, the Cardinals can't win postseason games anymore. And Ben, I don't know if you know this, but since 2013, the last time they went to the World Series, they are nine and 19 in the postseason. And I even saw one article, and I don't remember where it was, and I probably wouldn't name it anyway, just because I don't want to throw that kind of shade. But uh, that said, you know, that's you know that's a meaningful sample size. Like, no, it's not. Like, just because you assert that doesn't make that so. I mean, you know, take a statistics class, my friend. That means nothing. You're talking about 28 games spread over like six different seasons. I mean, it's it it, it doesn't mean anything, and it's it's tough because the importance of the postseason is is so high and it's so significant, but you know, and, and so we certainly feel it. And I understand like, especially people that kind of lashed out in the moments afterwards, you know, like that's tough. Um, but you know, in the cold light of day, you got to just step back and say like, you know, that's just, uh, it's basically just bad luck at this point. Yeah. And, and the other thing about it is you're talking about the Cardinals, like, they're the same team and this is all part of some greater pattern. And it's like, you're talking about three different man, an era, a time period that includes three different managers, uh, multiple hitting coaches, multiple pitching coaches, and uh, you know, a huge turnover. The, the only players who have been the same throughout it uh, are Yadier Molina and Adam Wainwright. And, you know, and they they have both had their ups and downs uh, during that time period, just as you would expect. And so the idea that like, oh, this is the Cardinals' problem, and and the fact that people who are old enough to remember 2006 and 2011, 
and could have just watched the postseason last year for an even more recent example of a not-so-great team getting hot and running the table in the form of the Atlanta Braves. And and I think the Braves being really good this year has kind of, to a degree, propped up last year's team, if that makes sense. But But they were not that good. They were a middling team uh, struggling to make the postseason, and they got hot and won it all. And, you know, we would like to ascribe all of these characteristics to an organization or a team, but it's, it's just absurd because there are different players and all that, all that you need is to get hot at the right time and you can run the table. And the Cardinals might still be playing, you know, if, if Helsley is able to finish off that ninth inning, um, yeah. you know, and so it's just drawing these great lessons about the franchise and the roster and ownership and uh, the front office. It's it based on a two game performance this fall just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. So, well, Ben, moving on, I think the one of the other things we wanted to talk about today was uh, Adam Wainwright. And as you and I record this, it was uh, earlier today, actually, that he released a, uh, can we call it a tweet storm, Ben? Was it a tweet storm? I think it was just a thread, although oh, okay. he did not use the thread emoji. I think it would have been funny if he would have been like, thread on my mechanics with yes. the... With the, the little the little thread uh, emoji, yes, yeah. <laughs> to signal to everyone he was going to do this, but he did not do that. He just he just created a thread. That's true. Well, but he's our age, and so it's it's tough for guys our age to know all those uh you know kind of the the new internet slang and everything. But I'm guessing most folks saw he in in this uh, tweet thread. Um, he basically outlined the fact that he uh, was uh, hit by a, a comebacker on I believe August 28th, um, kind of in the kneecap. Uh, it led to him kind of shortening his stride and, and you know, just basically a, a mechanical change that then, of course, led to more arm strain as he was trying to generate power through his arm, et cetera, et cetera. And, and essentially, you know, kind of, well, not essentially. I mean, he literally like apologized to fans for his you know performance at the end of the season. Um, and uh, in, in I think ba- both from posting that thread as well as kind of from what came in uh, uh, Derek Gould's article afterwards, Ben, I got the sense he's 100% coming back next season, which I always thought he was. Um, so I'd love to know your thoughts on that. And also just what did you think about that that thread and, and what he had to say? Uh, well, my first reaction is what is the organization doing? Like how is there not someone in the organization, whether it's uh, one of the folks uh, looking at uh, stat cast pitch data on release point, you know, whatever they have folks crunching up there, noticing that something's off. How do how does uh, the pitching coach not notice, the manager, another pitcher, Yadier Molina, the bullpen catcher, you know, someone uh, you would think would notice that the very tall guy who who uses extension a lot for success because he doesn't throw very hard Mm -hmm. is landing a foot. I mean, a foot is a, is a pretty large distance on a pitching mound, you know, like relative to the overall size of it. Well, especially because these these guys lock their mechanics in. I mean, it's, it's insane how repeatable their mechanics are, which is why they're professionals. Yes. They train their bot. Like it is, it it's, they call it muscle memory because they, you know, for a reason, and they drive that memory home and they just, it's, it's just boom, boom, boom every time. And there can get to be little tweaks that they need to make, but I can't believe nobody saw it for six weeks. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's just completely inexcusable to me. Um, how no one managed to notice this is the problem. Yeah. Yeah, I like mean, what does Mike Maddox do? What what is Mike Maddox doing out there? Yeah, like just it's a it's a real question, and I, I mean we've talked about this before. It, it is it's odd the way that this organization has moved in pretty much every other route. I mean, you've got Jeff Albert coming in as the hitting coach. You've got Ollie Marmol coming in as the you know the manager, uh, and then yet for the pitching coach, you've still got kind of the like 
you know, like friendly old man who puts a hand on their shoulder. And, and, you know, I've tried to maybe give a benefit of the doubt just in the sense that, you know, maybe there's other people in the system, um, you know, who are kind of doing more of the pitching analytics and, and certainly those, those kind of soft skills, especially in a major league bullpen where you're actually dealing with people in the moment, those are totally legitimate skills. And so I'm not kind of trying to minimize that, but whether it's Maddox or whether it's anybody else, I mean, this is just another data point that says to me, like, what the hell is this organization doing as far as like, you know, developing pitchers, like just understanding, you know, what pitchers are doing. And it, it just continues to blow my mind that Albert is the punching bag for this organization. You know, when you think about this season, you had two, you know, you're going to have like two of the top three vote getters in the MVP race, right? You had guys like Lars Newtbar and Brendan Donovan coming from almost nowhere and asserting themselves as like, you know, very above average major league hitters, right? I can I can point to so much success on the hitting side. Like, sh- show me any success on the pitching side from this this Cardinals team. I mean, you had some guys who performed kind of as expected, but I'd be hard pressed to point to somebody who, you know, like took like a giant step forward or any, you know, uh, you know, rookie who came up, you know, midseason and had any success. And it's been that way for years. Yeah. It, it has. It's, you know, you really have to go back to Lilliquist, the the Matheny Lilliquist era, mm-hmm. to find when they had success drafting, developing, and promoting to the majors uh, a pitcher. Yeah. And uh, it, it's been very glaring the last couple of years because they, they attempted to go the internal route last year. And it was, you know, John Gant, cannot be described as anything other than a failure, perhaps the worst starting pitcher in all of major league baseball last year. So bad. He, he left the country, uh, to, to play, uh, in another league and, you know, Oviedo, uh, also a failure, Carlos, uh, Martinez coming back from injury. They, they added a cutter to his repertoire, which was a failure by any measure. And things were so bad that they went out and got Jay Happ and John Lester. And only then did they have success. And they kind of ran that on repeat this year, uh, having to go out and acquire two established major leaguers who came over and have had success. And, you know, all four of those acquisitions are big pitchability guys with pretty large repertoires who worked well with Molina and Kisner and experienced success. And so you kind of wonder with this as the template, what are they going to do without Molina? You know, if they're still relying on their current pitching approach and, uh, I got to tell you, it's a little worrisome. Yeah, it really is. It really is. Um, now that said, um, I, I got to tell you, Ben, I, uh, I'm looking forward to having Adam Wainwright come back and I think he should come back. And I have to say this is another area where I saw, you know, I've seen a number of tweets saying like, oh, he should just retire. He's obviously done. I think everything we said about Goldschmidt is really goes for Wainwright as well, because it was basically the same window of time at the end of the season that, you know, Wainwright, you know, his performance flagged. But again, you look over his entire season. I mean, his his fielding independent pitching in 2022 was exactly equal to what it was in 2021. And, you know, each of these years have been, um, you know, better than he had done, you know, since about uh, 2016. Right. He had those couple years, you know, 27, 2018. It was kind of looking like it was maybe blowing up on him. And then he's he's righted the ship. I mean, the fact that a pitcher has, uh, you know, injury fueled, you know, mechanics issue, dead arm, whatever you want to call it, the last month of the season. Now, I understand when that pitcher's 40, like anytime a pitcher of that age kind of shows some regression. It, it, yeah, it's natural to think like this could be the end. But, um, you know, he was an extremely good pitcher for the Cardinals this year. He pitched 191, you know, pretty quality innings for him. I don't see any reason that if he wants to come back, they they shouldn't bring him back. How do you feel about that? I, you know, I worry about Marmol's ability to effectively manage him. Um, but I think he did a pretty good job with Yadier Molina yes. this year. Yeah. And so I think that 
probably helps. I think you worry about um, the the quality of contact uh, because you know, like using the Statcast um, expected ERA. Uh, his expected ERA went up from three eight four to four five three. Mm-hmm. Now, how much of that is due to the last month? I don't know. Yeah. Um, but that's based on you know strikeouts, walks, quality of contact, and what you would expect in terms of runs allowed based on all of all of those yeah. figures. Um, but he's you know he's a guy who's really reliant on working on the edge of the zone with all of his pitches, and so there's a very slim. Uh, margin of error there for him. Now, that yeah. being said, I would really like an Adam Wainwright uh, farewell tour. I would yeah. like to see him uh, potentially get to 200 wins because the people who vote for things like the Hall of Fame seem to care about pitching wins, even though they're deeply, deeply flawed. Although more, more and more of those people are dying every year. So, <laughs> well, that's that's a fair point. Um, and and thank so goodness. Uh, thank goodness for that. <laughs> And so I, I think, uh, you know, I don't think he's in the Hall of Fame conversation if he does not come back and have a good year. Yep. And I think he's at least in the conversation if he does come back and have a good yep. year. And for and I enjoy his personality because he seems to genuinely love baseball, yep. uh, the St. Louis Cardinals, uh, and most everyone, actually. He, yeah. he kind of has a Labrador retriever type personality. <laughs> it's very endearing. It is. And so... Uh, you know, for all of those reasons, I wouldn't mind seeing him come back. But I also look at this roster and I and I feel like the thing that they need the most is a top of the rotation starter. And I, I don't think it's fair to expect him to be much more than, you know, probably best case scenario would be like a number three uh, innings eater type of starter. Yeah. And that's that's a really I mean, that's a really good point. And I agree with everything you said. I mean, to me. He, you know, he is, he's absolutely a back of the rotation guy, but he's a, you know, he's, he's over these last few years, he's been a pretty consistent, like 200 innings back of the rotation guy. And that's, that's a super valuable guy to have, especially for the kind of like team friendly one-year deals that Wainwright has shown he's willing to sign for at this late stage of his career. So when you take those two things, and like you said, you know, all-time Cardinals legend deserves a retirement tour. Could get into the Hall of Fame. Like to me, it's kind of a no-brainer to re-sign him. But but you make a good point there by bringing Wainwright back. First of all, uh, you know Jose Quintana has certainly expressed an interest to re-sign with the Cardinals, and I think there's very little chance that they sign Quintana if they sign Wainwright. Because if they bring Wainwright back, keep in mind in terms of guys who they have on, uh, you know, like free agent deals, right? You've got Michaelis, you've got Mats, you've got uh, Wainwright, and uh, who's the fourth one? There's a fourth one. Who am I, th- who am I forgetting? Um, Montgomery. Uh, well, Montgomery. Montgomery. Yeah, but Montgomery Montgomery will be on, uh, um, uh, I mean, Montgomery is a, an ARB guy, but he's going to be like a $10 million ARB guy. Um, who else did I forget? I feel like I forgot somebody. Um, Dakota Hudson? No, no, no. Not Dakota Hudson. Um, anyway, uh you know, there, there's just, there's not a lot of space there. So, you know, you've got, you, cause you've got Montgomery and Flaherty back there as well. I mean, they're the only two guys who are technically kind of still like team control ARB guys, but um, you know, it, you just, you don't see them bringing in a free agent pitcher to that mix because there's just like too many guys there, you know, and then it's kind of becomes a, you know, maybe who are they going to, who are they going to bump out at that point? Well, and it's it's Flaherty is to me the big one where they he his upside is such that they they have to have a a place for him uh, if he's able to pitch and be healthy all year. Uh-huh. And so if you're if you are gonna sign both Wainwright and uh, Quintana, you're going you're going to essentially be signaling to someone uh-huh. <laughs> like you you don't have a, a spot in this rotation. And so that's, um, you know, that's going to get a little bit tricky because Matt's is going to come back. You know, right. that's, that's why they went out and they got Montgomery is because Matt's wasn't going to be able to come back. Uh-huh. I, I think it, it's, it would, I think be pretty likely that, 
if if Mats was able to come back sooner, the or the Cardinals thought he was going to come back sooner, they don't trade Bader uh, for Montgomery. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in an alternate uh, reality or an alternate dimension, that probably happened. So, um, I, I that's the thing to me is you want Wainwright to come back, you want to do that for the goodbye tour. Um, but the team also needs a higher caliber pitcher than what he is likely to be. And so does it really fill a need? And I don't know if it does. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's, it's a fair point. It's a fair point, but I, I, I expect him to be back. I mean, you know, Montgomery and Flaherty are two guys who they could, um, challenge, you know, if they brought somebody in or, 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 you know, those guys, um, you know, I mean, there's a chance they could non-tender Montgomery. I doubt they will do that, but he's, he's, you know, uh, $10 million was the estimated arbitration figure I saw from him, which is not nothing, but I, I don't yeah. think there's any chance they don't do that. I'm just saying like, those are kind of their only other options, but really what this team needs is it needs some pitchers to develop in its system and come up, you know, it needs somebody like Matthew Liberatore to show something, you know, in 2022 that then puts him in the mix in 2023. And, you know, maybe he starts in AAA, but there's reason to believe that, you know, he's going to come up. And that, I mean, that was not the case. And, you know, Zach Thompson had some okay results out of the bullpen, but, um, you know, we're just, again, we're just not seeing it from the, you know, the, the guys in the Cardinals system. You know, you got to go all the way down to Tink Hens to really find a guy that looks like, you know, he could be, a number one and you know you know Tink Hens is like you know 15 years old and playing in a like U-Trip tournament at this point so he's he's not his arrival is not imminent no it isn't and you know if they go with Wainwright and leave themselves vulnerable to Flaherty's shoulder acting up again they could probably just trade for Quintana again and give <laughs> right. up like Liberator and a you know like a low a position player to get him so yeah. Uh, that's probably just what the front office is, is counting on. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it's, it, it's worked in the last two seasons in terms of like getting, you know, getting them into the playoffs. And, and I will say the one kind of playoff related thing, and I know I, t- I think we both tweeted about this kind of retweeted the uh, Joe Sheehan um, uh, stat that he pointed out that, you know, teams that have strikeout rates as low as the Cardinals have relative to the rest of the league have not succeeded in the playoffs and have not succeeded in the playoffs for a long time. So, um, you know, I think there is some, uh, I mean, there is something there that they, they put themselves in a tough position. I think over the course of a regular season, you know, to grind out wins with these kind of pitch to contact ground ball guys and a good defense, you know, I think they've shown that you you can make the playoffs that way, meaning you can, you know, win the worst division in your league and or be a wild card team. But it's it's a little more unclear if you can, you know, really consistently succeed in, in the playoffs when you're, you're really everybody you're going to be facing has those kind of high caliber strikeout uh, pitchers. So, um, Ben, as long as we're talking about guys they might acquire or things they might do. Let's just cast our eyes ahead to next year. It's very early, but um, any thoughts on the the changes we're likely to see in this roster next season? So the the number one thing, and I had someone ask me a question on Twitter, uh, and I responded, and I thought that their top priority uh, should be catcher. Um, and the reason being Yadier Molina, of course, is retired, Mm -hmm. so he's not coming back. Uh, I think Kisner got enough of a look this year, uh, that they would be comfortable moving on from him as a number one catcher type. Mm -hmm. He still, I guess, could be, uh, in the backup picture. Um, the, the most, I guess I'm going to use the word confounding uh, person in the organization uh, for me is, is Yvonne Herrera because he came up, mm-hmm. you'll recall, when Yachty got hurt. Mm-hmm. And you and I, and I think most people thought they're going to give him playing time here. Yeah. Like this is his kind of opportunity to get his feet wet and prepare for being a major league catcher next year. And that lasted no time at all. And they quickly sent him back down to AAA and got Austin Romine. 
Now, how unprepared do you think he was to be replaced quickly by Austin Romine? I mean, it's 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 pretty scary, frankly. Well, I mean, that, that they were willing to make that. There's move. you know, there's part of me that says as soon as it was clear to them that he wasn't going to get the bulk of the starts in the majors, they may have said, "Let's move him back to." Memphis where he can get the bulk of the starts because really we just want him to have a lot of you know experience but but I agree it's concerning and he didn't really you know I mean he never really resurfaced right and and uh and then I think it is interesting we talked about this that they sent Pedro Pajes to the Arizona Fall League um you know and uh you know which which just suggests that they maybe think more highly of Pajes than we thought they did I still think you'd have to assume Herrera is kind of above him on the, you know, the overall organizational depth chart. But yeah, it raises the question of, do they feel like either of these guys are a viable major leaguer next year? And really, even if they feel comfortable with, you know, Kisner take kind of taking the lead at catcher. And I think it's important for Cardinals fans to recognize the Cardinals have been a real unicorn for the last, you know, uh, you know, 15, 16 years with one guy taking as many of the starts as Yadier Molina has. Most major league teams now basically have two catchers. You know, they've got like a 60% of the time guy and they've got a 40% of the time, or, you know, it varies a little bit from there, but it's really a two man role. Um, my sense is that I think they feel, they definitely feel comfortable with, with Kisner as the 40% guy. I think they probably even feel comfortable with him as the 60% guy, but they might not be comfortable with Herrera or Pajes at all. And so, you know, that really creates an opening there. Um, so yeah, do you, I mean, what do you see them do? I know mean, we talked about this a few uh, weeks ago and kind of said, you know, we basically expected them to acquire kind of a, you know, journeyman type guy. Is that still your expectation? I, you know, I don't because, know. Because, because Ben, I don't know if you saw this, but Wilson Contreras was in a text thread with Jose Quintana <laughs> and Jose Quintana was <laughs> like, Hey, St. Louis is kind of okay. So I think some people have decided that, you know, Contreras to the Cardinals confirmed. I, you know, to me, Kisner has shown so little at the bat that it, that it's just, it's so ugly. I mean, they would have to feel very, very good about his defense. And, and I'm, I'm just not there from looking at it from afar that, that he's ready. Um, and if they do not feel good about Herrera, I mean, if they can go out and get like a Contreras or trade for a guy who's under club control for, you know, a few years, you know, maybe they do that and see if Herrera can become the 40% guy and then take over as the 60% guy toward the end of that contract. And then it's maybe between him and Pajes or him and a free agent or, or what have Mm -hmm. you, because um, I just like right now, you know, as much as this team is a develop and promote from within team and organization. Now I just look at what they have and I just don't see how they can move forward with those as the only options at catcher this year. Yeah, and it's tough. I mean, even if they – and by the way, I just brought up Andrew Kisner's uh, Fangraphs page, and his, his hitting is worse than I realized. <laughs> Not that I thought it was good, but it is worse than I, than I realized. But, um, you know, I mean, it, let's – but let's say that they – but it was definitely a step forward last year, right? Everything was a step forward. So let's say they still – they kind of feel good about the direction Kisner's going – you know, Andrew Kisner is like maybe a sophomore at this point in the world of catchers. And, you know, Herrera and Pajes are two freshmen. Do they really want to roll with like a sophomore and a freshman? Or, you know, do they want to go out there and, you know, get a junior or a senior? Yeah, I tend to agree. I think they will go get a junior or a senior. Definitely as, you know, maybe a kind of high quality backup who, you know, who could step into that role. I, I To me, the, the Contreras thing is kind of far-fetched. It just doesn't seem like the way this team generally operates. And of course he's, his defensive reputation is not real strong. And, you know, I, I do feel like this is a, pos- a position where the Cardinals will really go not just defense first, but defense almost exclusively. Um, you know, I don't think they're real worried about, you know, carrying a catcher who's, you know, 10, 15% below league average as a, as a hitter, because, you know, Yadier Molina's worked here for the last several years. 
Yeah, and you know the the other dynamic here is you know you're bringing Wainwright back for his farewell tour. You've got Goldschmidt under contract for a couple more years. the The Cardinals have rejected Windows, but you know the but nonetheless the iron is definitely hot. Like you know this is a postseason yeah. team that's losing Molina and losing Pujols. Uh, as well as Corey Dickerson uh, and and probably Quintana, but but those are not massive losses, yeah. and so this is definitely a, a roster that you're retooling for another postseason run, and so I I think you know who moves the needle the most. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you can add three wins to catcher. I mean, that's probably almost a a five win net game off the top of my head. I don't have everyone's uh, fan graphs pages in front of me and that's a huge swing, uh, you know? And so if you're able to do something like that uh, and I, you know, if it's Contreras, if it's, if it's someone via trade, um, I saw the blue Jays floated as a possibility earlier today already. Um, So I think that is what they have to do, and I and I think that will be uh, after Adam Wainwright. That will be their primary focus this offseason. I think is adding a catcher that'll will help give them more production at the plate uh, and more value overall. Yeah, no, I tend to think so as well. Um, do you see? You know, I guess the other one I've seen people talk about is, uh, you know, a, a you know a shortstop or a middle infielder. You know, what do they what do they do there? You know, um, you know, Edmund kind of effectively moved into shortstop role this year, but in doing so, um, you know, Gorman, uh, was successful, kind of struggled a little at the end of the season. Um, yeah, I understand why people think there could be a middle infield position there. Do you, do you see him doing anything there? Yeah. No, Me not either. at all. <laughs> I, it's going to be, uh, I would be shocked uh, there are players like Carlos Correa or Trey Turner that would make a lot of sense uh, for this team, Correa in particular. But um, I w- would be we, – we talked about this last offseason, that it made a lot of sense for them to go out and sign like a difference-making shortstop mm-hmm. to help the lineup and also double down on defense to find mm-hmm. someone who fits that profile. It's still sitting here today. It doesn't make any less sense. Well, I think you it. Know, I think have... it does make less sense, Ben, for two reasons. You know, number one, Edmund did show that he could be successful at shortstop, which was an unknown coming into this year. And so, you know, Edmund. Well, I don't think he's he's great. I certainly don't buy into some of the insane like you know, uh, you know, Edmonds, a you know, all-star, you know, MVP candidate type things, you know, he's fine there. And on top of that, uh, Mason Wynn is one year closer. So to me, it does make less yeah. sense this year than it did coming into this year where we didn't know coming into this year, if Paul DeYoung washed out, which he did, you know, we knew that they would, we thought they would probably give Edmund a shot, but we didn't really know. And we didn't know if he could pull it off. And of course, Mason Wynn, while he was promising, you know, was like a, you know, a high A guy, which, you know, is great, but that's kind of a long ways away. Well, now we've seen Mason Wynn kind of dominate double A and go to the Arizona Fall League. So Mason Wynn's a guy who's, who's not, I, I don't, I don't really expect that we'll see him in 2023, but he is not far away. That's true. Uh, You know, Edmund is probably a perfectly cromulent uh, bridge to Mason Wynn uh, in, you know, the second half of next season. Uh, You know, he's probably like a two, three win player at shortstop. And that's that's fine. Um, But if you're trying to compete so you don't have to be in the wild card. Where where do you add that? Where are you going to add that value? where do, where do you add that value and it i think shortstop is is where it's at and you know maybe Edmund is the starting third baseman after Nolan Arenado <laughs> opts out opts yeah. out no um, i think so, we should let people that are just uh, listening for the first time know that neither one of us expects that's going to happen ben they may not be able to read our sarcasm no, no but i i wouldn't be surprised if they do something with that contract right like um, a renegotiation yeah cuz it sounds like yeah, it sounds like Arenado wants that. 
Um, you know, like maybe they restructure the way the salary is paid and add a year and then a club option or something like that um, so that they can uh, have a Hall of Famer uh, end his career as a Cardinal and go into the Hall of Fame as a yeah. Cardinal uh, after he retires, like they just did with uh, Yadier Molina and will do perhaps with Adam Wainwright. I, I think that would kind of be in line of, Hey, we did something. Mm-hmm. We, we opened the yeah. wallet uh, for a little bit more money for an elite yeah. player. And then we also got, you know, a catcher, but it's also like maybe they trade, you know, Mason win for a catcher under club control. And then they go out and get a shortstop. I think that's highly unlikely, but that's another permutation depending on how that market develops. Yeah. But you know, I think Correa and Turner are both likely to get well north of 200 million and maybe even 300 million this off season. So uh, that doesn't sound to me like the the type of waters that Bill DeWitt and John Mosellock like yeah. to swim in. Yeah. So that that would really surprise. Yeah. You know, the one other area, it's a real outside chance, but I, I don't see them adding an outfielder. But I think between the trade deadline and now, the outfield situation is is a lot murkier than we kind of thought it was. And, you know, D- Dylan Carlson, um, you know, his obviously had a pretty poor second half of the season. And, you know, as we noted, um, you know, if you're looking for reasons that kind of continually declining exit velocity and quality of contact for for him has really become a real concern for me, you know, to the point, and he, I would say he's probably the player who's my opinion of has changed the most since we did our, our, you know, podcast at the beginning of the season. You know, I would have said Dylan Carlson was the player with the most trade value on this entire team, given his young age and given that, you know, he'd already had some, you know, decent MLB success, but you know, it's not just that he's, you know, kind of, you know, declined, uh, in terms of his overall production, those underlying declines there are kind of a concern for me as well. You add to that, you know, Tyler O'Neill, who just continues to show that like, you know, yeah, he can give you MVP level production for certain windows of time, but other times he doesn't. And, you know, the, the consistent injuries just seem to kind of be, a, you know, a thing with him as well. So, um, you know, that get, that gets a little murky in the outfield situation. That said, I do feel like Jordan Walker, I do think we will see next season in St. Louis. Um, and so, um, you know, even though I don't think there's a lot of guys in that outfield mix that they're necessarily really confident in, I think they have a lot of guys who could do the job and are under team control and have options. And that sounds to me like exactly how the Cardinals want to roll. So I don't, it's possible, but I don't see them probably going out and adding anybody there. What do you think? Uh, I, I think you're right. Um, I think that with, you know, the current group of players that they have enough that they feel comfortable being able mm-hmm. to cover it. Uh, the question is whether or not they need to package someone to, to fill another need similar to with yeah. what they did to with Harrison Bader this year, where, you know, and we talked about this right after the trade deadline, you know, his tendency to be on the injured list, I think led the team to decide to move in a different direction. Now, uh, kind of coincidentally, I guess Dylan Carlson's health, uh, problems this year have become more and more a topic of discussion. And I'm real interested to see how the media frames Dylan Carlson coming into spring training. Mm-hmm. You know, is it now his, now he is healthy and, you know, he, he is ready to take that step forward. Uh, or is it going to be more, you know, Dylan Carlson might not be a starting outfielder. Right. <laughs> Uh, I, I think that'll give us a little bit of an indication how much of an issue the team thinks his health was and contributed to his performance. Yeah. And I will say that if, if there is a hole in the outfield, it's definitely in center field, you know, and they moved Harrison Bader yes. kind of saying, we think Dylan Carlson can be good enough there. And when healthy, he's, he's good enough. He's not great. He's, he may not even be really good, but he's good enough. Right. But we saw his back kind of flagging as well. And really there's not other options there. I mean, Ben Deluzio is not a, 
not a starting major league player, you know, so that's, that's not really an option. I do think it's interesting that they've been, you know, playing Walker in center field in the, in the minor or in a, in the Arizona fall league. And I think he played there a little bit in the minors as well. I mean, given his size and body type and stuff, you, you kind of tend to think that might not work, but he's, you know, he's super athletic. So who knows, maybe they could get, you know, uh, some, you know, some performance out of him there, but, um, you know, they, they tried O'Neill there again this year, a little bit in the past, and he's just kind of a weird fit where he obviously just doesn't perform very well in center field, despite being a very good defensive left fielder, you know, that's just how it is with some guys. So I think that could be another factor there. If they don't believe in Carlson's bat and, or feel like his defense isn't good enough, I don't know where, you know, if they have anything else there. So, you know, again, I don't think it's likely, but I think there's kind of an outside chance that they're looking in that, you know, uh, outfield market, probably specifically for a center field guy. And maybe they even just bring in a guy who's a really sterling defensive player, like a, a Peter Borges type. Yeah, that that is something that they they could look for, but they have Deluzio and they thought enough about his defense to include it on the wild card right. roster. I mean, to me, he seems like a, a Shane Robinson type where, you know, they'll, they'll get him the occasional start. He'll come in in the late innings and they're happy to pay the league minimum for guys like that. And once they start to get more expensive, they're not so happy to pay them. And I think that's probably Deluzio's trajectory. Um, And I think it's really fascinating how, uh, at this time last year, we were talking about how well positioned they were in the outfield right. moving forward. And uh, and we've taken really three steps back. Harrison Bader's gone. O'Neill had a, a very up and down and overall poor season. And Carlson had an overall poor season. And now uh, we aren't sure who the second half of the season uh, will see the in the outfield. I mean, if you Cardinals. told me not just at the beginning of the season, but, you know, if you told me on like July 1st that at the end of the season, I would believe that Lars Newbar was a better uh, outfield option than Dylan Carlson. I would have told you there was zero chance of that, but here we are, Ben. <laughs> well, and one of the big things I, you know, that Newbar has always had going for him is he has a good plate approach and yeah. a good batting eye. And that was something that we would have said about Dylan Carlson, but uh, pitchers were a lot more aggressive with him this year, and and he did not respond. Now, whether that's because of his health or just because he was overmatched, who's yeah. to say? But uh, next year is going to be a big year for for him and his major. Well, and career. what I worry about with Carlson is that he, you know, his power is so absent that like I don't see any even even with a good plate approach. I don't see any reason for, you know, pitchers to not just fill the zone with strikes against him, you know, and just, you know, be like, you know, hit it. What, what are you going to do? You know, what's, what's he really going to do? So, um, and you know, that's the challenge for guys who have, you know, maybe a good batting eye, but not great quality of contact like that, that, you know, you can't really live with that mix because eventually <laughs> they're going to say, all right, we'll take your quality of contact. <laughs> and it doesn't, doesn't tend to go so well. So, um, Ben, anything else? I mean, I, I think we'll definitely be back with folks during the off season. Certainly once we, you know, get to some, you know, real kind of, uh, important dates or if anything big happens to talk about some of these moves and things, but anything else you wanted to say before we wrap it up? Um, you know, thanks everyone for listening to us throughout the year. Uh, I thought this season was a really, really fun season, especially the second half. And it's a shame it ended the way that it did. Um, but as uh, Humphrey Bogart said in Casablanca, we'll always have Paris, which is, of course, Albert Pujols' second half of the season and, and the farewell to he and Yachty, which uh, I think in a year or two is what we're going to remember this season oh, yeah. for not the flame out against the Phillies. No, hundred percent. I'll be honest. I think I'm going to remember this season more fondly than I remember 2013, which was the year they went to the world series. I think there was more character this year. There were some of those, yeah, moments that we're going to, you know, remember forever. Uh, I know when I was at that final uh, regular season home game with my kids, that was kind of something that I thought, and we even talked about, you know, like 
they're going to always remember that or be able to tell people, hey, I was at, you know, the, the like farewell game for Albert Pujols and Yadier Molina. So we, yeah, we experienced so much this year. I, I had, a you know, really enjoyed the season. And, and just to echo, Ben, what you said, um, so grateful for all the people that listen to us. And, um, you know, we, you know, of course, we see the numbers and we see, you know, the audience is continuing to grow of people listening to us, you know, more and more kind of questions and comments coming in. And, uh, you know, we're really appreciative of that because, you know, you and I enjoy doing this, but it wouldn't really be any fun if it was just uh, you and I talking and nobody listening. Um, actually, it w- you know, it, w- it would still be fun, but it wouldn't be as much fun. <laughs> we, we would do more in-person yeah. recording uh, with beers, probably, if, if no one was listening to, to up the yeah, fun absolutely, thing. absolutely. So, uh, so anyway, again, thank you, everybody. Thanks for being with us this season. Um, keep an eye out in your feed. We'll be, we'll be popping in periodically through the off season, and then we'll uh, see you next year.